now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 10 of our drug season, Just Science visits Atlanta for the 45th annual ASCLAD Symposium to talk with the Orange County, California Laboratory Director and chair of the ASCLAD Opiate Task Force Committee, Bruce Houlihan. Listen along as John and Bruce tackle the nation's most complex drug war front on the topic of seized drugs in labs and why post-mortem findings, research, and collaborations are hot topics around today's changing landscape for laboratory safety. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We're here this week at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Meeting in May of 2018 in beautiful but rainy Atlanta. We have with us today uh, the laboratory director of the Orange County, California Crime Laboratory, Bruce Houlihan. He is the chair of the ASCLAD Opioid Task Force Committee and serves in that consortium of U.S. Crime Laboratory directors, forensic science organizations such as AFS. It includes U.S. federal agencies, private laboratories, and academic institutions. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So it's really interesting. Orange County has been the uh, site of some of the leaders in forensic science over the years, and it's a major laboratory there in, in Southern California. That must be quite a challenge in and of itself. We think so. Orange County is a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to be, but we have a excellent crime laboratory. A lot of history in Orange County, great cases. Our staff are top notch. Uh, we have a lot of commitment from Orange County and our law enforcement agencies, specifically about driving in the influence, toxicology, DNA advancement, high technology. And as a full service laboratory, it's important that we provide services for everybody in Orange County. So. One of the best things I have working for me is that we're really the only major crime laboratory in Orange County. There's one other lab that does firearms, and some of the police departments do field work. But the rest of it, we're actually doing everything else. And so I get to work with all of the law enforcement agencies and sometimes federal agencies. We're a very tight-knit group, so to represent them is something that is really the highlight of my career. That's fantastic. And you're very, very fortunate, I think. And it's a lab with a, an enormously strong reputation. Yeah, that's good to hear. <laughs> and I assume a lab that's probably seeing some of the challenges with the opioid problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think this was a little bit of a shock to me when I began working with the committee with how much the East Coast had seen already. But I think our first foray into this in California specifically, but Orange County too, was with the use of painkillers in human performance toxicology, but all, mostly in, in driving in the influence and postmortem work. So we're one of the laboratories that gets to do seized drugs, which is, you know, they find white powder, for example, human performance, which is driving under the influence mostly, and postmortem cases. So we do the work for our coroner's office, too. And so being able to see all three pieces of that gives us a very integrated view of what's going on. So we saw the postmortem piece to this first. Uh, we began to see fentanyl showing up, as an example, fentanyl showing up in our jails. But other opiates were showing up in a lot of our casework, particularly postmortem casework. So people sure. who had passed away under different circumstances had multiple 
opiate analogs, drugs like Dilaudid or hydromorphone or hydrocodone, in addition to the more traditional drugs of abuse like heroin. One of the things that we emphasize a great deal is the importance of forensic pathology because there really is, unfortunately, it's not truly an early warning system, is it? Because you already have lost somebody by the time you pick it up in, in right. post-mortem. But on the other hand, it's an early warning system for a lot of trends that become more self-evident later on. We really need to make sure we've done what we can to strengthen those systems so that those Absolutely, tox scans yeah. are done well. So that communication was very beneficial to us, but these opiates then began showing up in our driving cases. Right. So people were, the example we typically use is minors were actually getting hold of prescription medications and then driving under the influence, but a lot of people were using multiple drugs at the same time. But it became a little bit of a shock to us when we began seeing fentanyl and seized drugs. We would see it occasionally, but we would see it in forms that looked like something else, whether in a pill that may look like Xanax or it looked like black tar heroin, which is our typical type of heroin. Mexican heroin that we see in Orange County. And Sam so, Canonis, if anybody has not read the Sam Canonis yeah. book on, on both the uh, prescription drug epidemic and the black tar <clears throat> heroin origins, uh, I strongly suggest they do so. So it looks like other drugs, and we began seeing fentanyl, and we began seeing a lot of fentanyl end very quickly. And then we began seeing analogs that other labs have, and you probably know that one of the analogs that concerns us most is carfentanil. You know, it's an elephant tranquilizer, mm -hmm. but it's extremely potent. 100 times more potent than you might find with fentanyl. And of course, fentanyl is about 50 times more potent than morphine and heroin. So very, very concerning. And a grain of this stuff can kill somebody. So we began doing some research and talking to others. And because the East Coast had seen this a little bit before us, we were able to open some dialogues and begin talking about cases. But then we talked to you know other California laboratories about what they're seeing too. They started seeing these drugs. And so it then basically drew us into this dialogue. So we were looking at it in Orange County holistically about all the different ways that seized drugs, driving, and of course, uh, post-mortem cases were being influenced. And then when the Ask God board came calling about developing a cohesive look at this nationwide from the Ask God organization, it was a very easy transition for us because <laughs> there's a lot going on. And sure. Just as we began about a year ago, uh, you know, the articles just keep coming in every day. And it's in the public eye. There are a lot of legislation going on about this. People are concerned about fentanyl. People are concerned about overprescribing opiates. Mm -hmm. And while there's very legitimate use for opiates and people who are on chronic pain, you know, desperately need these drugs, there needs to be a balance in our culture too. So. Sure. And it's a challenge for the forensic laboratory. Uh, we, we've done a, a podcast with uh, Paul Speaker, which uh, looked at some of the economic issues around it. And, and uh, estimated, you know, $270 million over the last five years of increase in resources in forensic laboratories to deal with the opioid epidemic. That's yeah, I was, was at that talk, and yeah. I agree with what he said, absolutely, but when you actually hear the number, it's just a little shocking. You know, <laughs> it the, is the shocking, It kind of stares yeah. at you in the face, and, yeah. and, you know, I see the numbers every day about how much work we do, but when you, when you put it in that kind of aggregate, it's just, it is staggering. And he makes yeah. the point that's yeah. even <clears throat> considering the fact that the system has become more effective because you're doing more high throughput work. You have labs that may have, have been underutilized before or now right, really saturated. You're actually, your per case cost has actually declined significantly at the same time that you've seen that kind of increase in overall cost. It's an ongoing vicious circle, I guess, is that we optimize our methods to be able to handle things as they happen, and we get better at it and cheaper at it. But then there's always something around the corner yes. that asking for more resources. And so it's just a never-ending cycle, it seems. A lot of the speakers have talked about, we're doing marijuana, of course, and there are synthetic cannabinoids. 
there are tons of designer drugs, bath salts, and the, just the sheer number of analogs that the DEA, who's been a great partner with us, mm -hmm. by the way, um, in helping ASCOT with this, the sheer number of analogs that we're actually seeing with fentanyl is now growing. You know, add a submolecule here or a, another fluorine here or whatever you want to do, it just change the molecule and now it becomes a, a completely different drug that we have to analyze. So. Right. Another one of our podcasts that I hope people look for is Barry Logan's and he talks about all of, the, uh, all of that. And one of the things that he and I talked about a little bit was this whole idea of, well, crime labs are set up to really look at much more standardized materials, right? I mean, right. crack cocaine was still cocaine, and, and I never say it right, benzocanone. Yeah, I never liked that yeah. spelling my entire career. Yeah. And we, call, we call it BE. Yeah, BE, exactly, yeah. But still, what your metabolite is, it's, it's much more straightforward. When you're looking even at the seized drugs and some of these fentanyl analogs, you're gonna see stuff you wouldn't have expected any other way, and you may not even be using a method that would see it using you know, your traditional LC, yeah. MSMS even, or something like right. that. Well, the hard thing about fentanyl is just the concentrations are so low. We're very fortunate that we have technology available to us to be able to do this, like you said, the LCMSMSs and so forth, the QTOFs. But you know, I started when barbiturates were par for the course in toxicology. We had barbiturate cases coming in, and barbiturates were typically in microgram levels. And then the drugs of abuse moved to nanogram levels per milliliter of blood. And now we're dealing with fentanyl, which is in the picograms mm. sometimes. And so the sheer concentration, not concentration, but the sheer strength and potency, actually we should talk about lethality of these right. drugs, not potency, but yeah. it is pretty Your amazing. LD50 so, is pretty low. Yeah, yeah, it's challenging. You mentioned QTOF, and he makes the point is like, you know, not a whole lot of labs have high resolution yeah. mass spectrometry now, and that's gonna be a huge resource problem, but I mean, one that probably labs are gonna need to face. Do you all have QTOF or something like it in your Orange County lab? We do, we are uh, almost finished with our validation right now. We hope to bring it online this year for toxicology. You know, they're very expensive, but they're very powerful. We were very fortunate that our sheriff department actually was able to find the money, in part because I think they're familiar with our driving under the influence of drugs program that we have, and they're very supportive of that. But I'm speaking for Orange County, not necessarily the committee, but we are trying to work with most of the California labs, Office of Traffic Safety, and so forth, to standardize some of the equipment that we have in California so other laboratories have this available to them by making purchases and so forth. Because if we don't change in this area, we're not going to be able to keep up with some of these drugs. Sure. And then there's a the whole issue of redundancy, right? We really need two of these instruments. If one goes down and we want to do things on two different instruments with two different people, right, we have one right now. <laughs> right, which is so, expensive enough as it it's is. It's expensive so enough, we, and they're very expensive. Yeah, we happen to have uh, two QTOFs in our laboratory, uh -huh. One, only one <laughs> in our forensic science side. But yeah, they're expensive instruments to very. get and to maintain. We notice that cost. That's a hidden cost piece that sometimes yeah. Yeah, comes in later. Yeah. Well, when we move to triple quad LCEs, that was a long road for us too. Again, Office of Traffic Safety helped us, but the county actually stepped up. So, and something that's really never happened before, we were able to get three at the same time, which gave us tremendous amount of redundancy for what we were doing. So then we were able to do driving cases and post-mortem cases at the same time. But that, that's Orange County, so. No, 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 yeah. that's cool. I mean, I think what you're doing is probably, it's great that you have the resources to do it, but a lot of other lads are gonna have to go down that same path and they're gonna be looking to see what you've accomplished in Orange County. Well, I hope we can work together I, nationally to standardize this a lot. I know I participate with OSAC with a lot of my colleagues and... Organization of Scientific Area okay. Committees of the yes, National Institute okay. of Science and Technology. And you know, the, the committee that I'm on is, is really wonderful because we have this unique opportunity to listen to everything that's going on in OSAC. And so I get to sit in sometimes on the SACs and the subcommittee meetings, but I think the toxicology subcommittee is really trying to do this where, as most of them are, is not just standardize our practice, but to bring everybody up to the same level so we can all do things as they need to be done. So it's exciting to watch that. And there's some really active things going on in the chemistry sack. 
Well, to the credit of ASCLAD, you all have been looking at this now for a couple of years. So how long has the task force been operating, the yeah, opioid uh, task force? Just a little close to a year. And very, very necessary. I mean, there's a lot going on. How does ASCLAD kind of scope where the opioid task force is going to try to make a difference on this issue? When I was talking to Ray Wickenheiser about this, who's our outgoing president, I think he had a very high level view, as the board probably did, about what was happening nationally, right? So by being able to talk to all the laboratories in the country, you can see what they're all facing, uh, where some are not seeing certain drugs, some are seeing other drugs, some are really challenged with this. And ASCOT being in a unique position to talk about perspectives and relationships nationally is a really good thing. So they really tasked us to look, represent all the crime laboratories and actually make recommendations to the crime laboratories, make guidance documents or just provide information so that we all can work together on this. So what happens to be what they're seeing in the East Coast, where the West Coast maybe is, is a little bit behind the scenes and needs to be brought up to speed, or what the DEA has already done in terms of some of the research. I think the committee's main role was really to help try to coalesce that information into a usable form in a very quick fashion. So our documents that we produced and our, our committee members produced really about giving short bolus injections, if I can put it that way, of information. But I hope our documents were actually able to do that and provide, at the very least, to see documents for information that you need. So you want to know who's doing what with safety or what information is being recommended, you can do that. We, you know, we didn't really want to give 40, 50-page documents. Sure. And they're all on the policy side of the ASCLAD website. I think the board decided, to their credit, spin up a opioid-based sub-website on the ASCUD site. Kudos to them for actually doing that because there's a lot of other information that the committee didn't even produce on that site. But we then had the ability to put our documents on there directly. So the board used some of our information for policy output. They used our white papers, of course, that are posted. There's information from the DEA there about some of the work they've done on synthesizing with the fentanyls mm -hmm. and analogs. And so it's a really good one-stop shop for the crime lab directors. Mm -hmm. And those are actually looking for what's going on nationally. Yeah. So. You alluded to some of the assistance that DEA has done for you because a lot of the labs just don't have the extra capacity to really understand what's happening in terms of synthesis routes and, and so what you might see coming out of your analysis might be mysterious if it weren't for some of the basic work that DEA is and some research folks have been doing in this area. One of the things that's a little disappointing in my career is that we don't get to do as much research as we used to in crime laboratories because that was very fun, number one, but it also enabled us to write methods and actually tailor things a little bit more specifically. But the DA, I'm still jealous of them because the DA still gets to do that a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit more involved. Obviously, their, their world is seized drugs, but they get to spend a little bit more time on the raw chemistry and how things are synthesized, how things are put together. And so they're a really good source of information for the bleeding edge, if you will, of analogs, synthesis, mass specs, and whatever you need to do. So they've been more than willing to help us, and we really appreciated that. And the other aspect of this that's really critical, and I know a lot of people are worried about it, is the safety aspects. Uh, these are, as you say, very powerful drugs, and and you're getting potential exposures in the laboratory, and it's not necessarily very reassuring to come into work and there's a little naloxone <laughs> container up there in case you're near death. That, and, and so some of those recommendations are very important as well. Absolutely. I asked all the lab directors when I gave my presentation yesterday about how many were actually using Narcan, mm -hmm. which is the commercial product for naloxone. And it was wonderful to see that uh, virtually everybody Mm -hmm. has had some exposure or working on using this in their laboratory because it's absolutely necessary. But whether it's uh, inmates that may be housed in jails that we're working with in law enforcement or it's our first responders at the scene, I, I think probably one of the biggest cases we saw in Orange County initially for us was 
someone found a very large a kilo, a very large amount of fentanyl opened up sitting in a closet. And because we typically see this as cocaine, we weren't necessarily expecting this quantity of fentanyl. And so, you know, you approach it like cocaine, no big deal, package it and send it to the lab. Fortunately, it was just regular fentanyl, but when you learn it's fentanyl, then things change drastically. So that put the first responders at risk. What we don't want, are obviously, is our officers passing out from exposure to fentanyl. So some of our staff worked very closely with our law enforcement stakeholders, but we involved our lab people as well, our, certainly our property people, and they're transporting this uh, to work on Narcan policies that we can actually use. And so it's really comprehensive now in Orange County where the first responders have it. Of course, uh, that includes EMTs as well as the, the law enforcement folks. But our lab people have it, our property people, and it's uh, directly available to them. So, and we've used it. We've had, uh, we had a victim who was being booked in the jail or actually came into the jail and he was actually already on the drug. But um, it took four or five doses of Narcan. Mm-hmm. So it saves lives. And it's a good thing. And the last thing I want is for my staff to actually be compromised in terms of their safety. I mean, they're dealing with this every day, right? It's not just one person getting dosed. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure they're safe. Yeah. It isn't just common sense because some of this stuff is so, it's yeah. outside of your normal experience. And so you need to, need to be able to understand it from that perspective. Part of that safety, too, is, as you heard yesterday, was discussion about our packaging practices. You know? mm-hmm. So how are we transporting this? Our laboratories, what we call double bagging, or are they using multiple containers for this? Typically, we'll take the drug out of its container, so we're weighing just the drug. Mm-hmm. But that process, of course, exposes risk to our analysts. And so we use different practices now about how we weigh things. Sure. And we're actually having to look at some novel ways of sampling that don't release a lot of the, the powders. But, you know, we have protective hoods and so forth. But We've struggled with this in our laboratory, too, because we work with it for uh, reference materials and things of that nature. And it is a difficult problem because what you're trying to do is to make sure the person is protected, but you're also trying not to aerosolize anything. Right. And uh, it's, it's a difficult compromise to make. Yeah. Now, most of what the committee has done thus far has really focused in on seized drugs. You're looking at, at it from a controlled substances perspective, and, which is hard enough as it is because how this stuff is manifesting, again, it's not like marijuana plant or something of that nature. It's a much more advanced kind of thing. It isn't as predictable in terms of its morphology. You can't look up the pills anymore because they're going to stamp the pills to make it maybe look like something else and, and put it in all sorts of matrices and mixtures and things. The seized drugs is complicated enough, but now, now you're also going to try to work inside the tox and going back into some of the postmortem stuff too, hopefully. Is that right? We are. Uh, I haven't really vetted this out fully with the committee. Uh, this is really an informal dialogue with us, but quite frankly, our task groups did such a great job this past year in providing some work product that I think we're able to do this. But, you know, we haven't seen as much fentanyl in deriving yet, right? But we are seeing in postmortem cases, and I think this is what's concerning to some of our partners are the fatalities. But driving is a big issue. I'm also concerned, and I think we should be concerned, with a lot of the other opioids that are involved in driving, too, because they're being used that way. So, I mean, the crisis can come at you from not just fentanyl in, you know, illicit context, but also with prescription drugs that are being abused and sold and so forth. And the availability of these drugs, I think, is the big issue. I mean, there's some lawsuits across this country right now specifically about trying to hold the prescription drug manufacturers, are they accountable for making these drugs as well? Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, and Orange County is one of them.
Well, yeah, and I'm not here to weigh in on particular yeah, policy, <laughs> policy issues, especially I know uh, California, for example, is now uh, basically a legalized marijuana state. But prescription drugs are legal as well, and there's an awful lot of concern out there in terms of when those are used, when people are either driving or, or using it while they're uh, in an occupational setting where they could be a danger to themselves or, or others. These are, these are real concerns no matter what the application is in terms of... Uh, how you get them legally or not. Right. Uh, you know, abusing them in a way that endangers yourself and others is a whole different kettle of fish. And we're seeing that in the opioids here uh, with prescription drugs and also some of these cocktails that are arising. Some people are getting exposed to fentanyl compounds thinking that they're taking something completely different. Right. I think that's the big question. Users uh, may not know what they're getting mm -hmm. and why they have overdoses. But the question is, who's actually putting fentanyl in this country? Mm -hmm. we originally, we thought that maybe this was coming in from, you know, legal manufactured fentanyl that was being stolen or abused or misused in terms of the prescription fentanyl that's available for cancer patients and so forth. But uh, that's certainly not the case. I think this is coming in from overseas and it's mm -hmm. coming in illicitly. And so why is it coming in and how is it being distributed to people that causes these fatalities, I think? If I had to guess, I would say most of the fatalities are people that didn't know they were taking fentanyl. Mm -hmm. or maybe thought they were taking an opiate, and because they're either cut with fentanyl or fentanyl was substituted, they expired simply because of the, you know, the potency, of course, and lethality of fentanyl. Sure. We've done some work looking at if somebody has the ability to take a colorimetric test to determine the presence of fentanyl in a uh, heroin or sample, you know, what they would do. And, you know, there's three different ways that they might react to that, right? One of them might be, hey, let me add it. And that's, of course, the most dangerous thing. <laughs> Fair number of them will say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's a, I understand the danger of it. And, of course, the third is, is one that, where it gets very complicated. It's like, I'll take it, but I'll make sure my buddy has the Narcan handy, <laughs> um, which no, can also sad. be very dangerous, right? Because that's not as always simple in that regard. But well, it, it all of that is a very interesting ideology. It was suggested to me that you know, we probably should not use the word potency when we're talking about fentanyl. We should probably use the word lethality. Because potency implies, oh, this is strong stuff and this is good stuff, right? Right. But this is stuff that will kill you very easily. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously it's being used to cut. And especially when you're talking about some of the analogs, the ability for you to, to die from fentanyl is just very, very scary. Now, if you're driving a car, that's a whole different issue you know, mm -hmm. with the other opiates, too. But we've had an, our share of fatalities in Orange County due to this. At the very least, I think the low-hanging fruit here is letting people know that you may know, not know what you're taking, mm -hmm. but be aware because this stuff can kill you very quickly. Sure. And to those individuals, I think, who know what they're taking, I hope they understand the risk they're putting themselves in. And I'm very pleased that ASCLAD has the task force because I know a lot of government agencies are struggling with response, right? Yeah. How are we even going to deal with this issue? And some of the localized responses have been very effective, but no localized response is going to be effective unless they have some real data on which to work. So it's very important for the forensic labs and for the medical examiner offices to have really, really good capability so that a, an accurate picture of what's going on from hopefully day to day, but at least week to week and month to month can be, can be built in the individual jurisdiction. They can be tailoring their responses as, as appropriate. There's some work that's being done at the, uh, the federal funding level to collate seized drugs information nationwide, right? What are laboratories seeing? What are the trends we're actually seeing with particular seized drugs that have been identified? And a lot of labs are participating. It's been very, very useful information coming out of NIJ uh, specifically about this. But To be fair, DEA's National Forensic Laboratory Information System. Absolutely, the NIFLA system as well, right? Mm -hmm. So 
yeah, they're kind of a partner in this too. So of course, I hope that we have the opportunity to do this with toxicology and and later possibly link the two because the relationship between seized drugs and postmortem is not just intriguing; it's actually probably prescient, if I can use that word. If we can predict actually what's happening in certain geographies or localities, we might be able to prevent those fatalities. I think sure. coming down the road, but. So there are some attempts that are, are starting really now to look at information from medical examiners and coroners as well as crime laboratories that are doing the toxicology work and starting to pull the information like NIFLIS does with the DEA to see if we can actually notice some of these trends. So the committee just started a dialogue with the CDC and we're actually soliciting information from crime laboratories that do toxicology work medical examiners as well. We're also working with AFS that's doing this, American Academy is doing this, uh, the National Association of Medical Examiners is actually looking at this. So if we can hopefully start collecting this data, developing relationships between the drugs that we're actually seeing on the street versus what's actually happening, uh, causing our fatalities, that will be great information for us as a country. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate the work that the task force is, is doing. We'll yeah, make done sure an to, exceptional job. Yeah, we'll make sure to point people as yeah. much as we can to the uh, subpage on the ASCLAD website concerning opioids, and I hope people right. take advantage of that uh, excellent resource uh, of, of information, and thank you so much for, for your work on that. Oh, you're welcome, and on behalf of the committee, um, we, we appreciate it. Uh, the people on the committee like doing it, and they've been very invested, which is great as a chairman to work with. Sure, and Bruce, <laughs> thank you for being on Just Science. We appreciate your sharing with us uh, what's going on in Orange County and on the committee. Oh, my pleasure, thank you for the invitation. And for those of you who are listening, please, I uh, want to thank you as well for uh, being a part of the Just Science community. Please, on the platform that you get your podcast out of, uh, make sure you give us positive reviews and tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science so they can take advantage of the great information that's being shared with the forensic science community, with the, with the forensic science professionals that is under Just Science and the other products of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. And thank you very much for listening today. Next week, Just Science talks with Dr. Barry Logan, Senior Vice President of Forensic Science Initiatives and Chief of Forensic Toxicology at National Medical Services Incorporated. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.